Today I welcome Helen Pike, Master at Borden College in Oxford, UK. In this episode, I discuss widening access in independent education, teaching attention, basics of sleep and water to help well-being, and helping students understand consent. Well, within a school, you're all storytellers and actually getting good written word, but also in digital modern format that's consumable is completely changing. Have you ever had to adapt your style to think about how do you write for the kids of today? Yes, very much so. And particularly about different media, I think. And the last couple of years have really encouraged us to diversify in that way. So during the pandemic, when school was closed, I was doing a weekly podcast or podcast. And that's a very different way of thinking and communicating, slightly different from being in chapel and doing a a talk to people. You have to think about how it's going to be received when you're not in the room with them. It's, It's fascinating, actually. And sometimes I try and think about how people are going to the question of relevance is an interesting one isn't it so sometimes I'll try and relate it to things that are directly relevant to what they're doing and particularly when we're looking at everyone's invited and encouraging people to talk about areas of their lives that perhaps they hadn't in school before in quite the same way but equally sometimes I will just come in come in with the full-on 15th century you know I'll be talking about you know our founder or early thinkers in Oxford. And actually, it's quite important to bridge some of those gaps and think about the school history and do things that are also quite intellectually challenging and which some people might seem a bit old fashioned. But it's really important. Do you think that this is a broad statement, but the kids of today don't know how to write as well as we do because their medium is very much bite-sized, consumable of a few seconds, almost like transitory? Yeah, do you know, I don't think that. Because I think actually, in some ways, they see a lot more text and visual imagery than ever before. I think it's become ever more important for them to be able to read and write. Of course, also, we've still got a core curriculum in the UK where everybody's doing GCSE. So everybody has access to quite a range of knowledge and they are required to have mastery of the written word. But I get your question. I am quite fearful about what would happen if, say, we examined in different ways and didn't require those kinds of quite basic and fundamental skills. Because it's not just about being able to write, it's about writing, helping you think as well. But no, I think the kids are actually quite dexterous at managing the different ways of communicating and knowing what registers are appropriate. And I actually think that the requirement for everything to be more brief, you know, the brevity and, and concise nature of social in it and currency that our students use right now, it's actually really good because it's thinking that they don't need those extra words. You don't need extra words to get across what you need to say. But at the same time, there is a romance to having a lovely narrative that joins paragraphs together into something that you can lose yourself in that you don't quite get with, with something that is short and punchy. The only thing you get there is the visual look and feel that takes you in. So I'm always fascinated by that piece. I think it's teaching our kids some level of brevity to get their point across in a disruptive, noisy time. That is true. I mean, I'm a great fan of clarity. I would say actually that one of the biggest changes in the way that we experience information and story has been film. We see things in scenes, we storyboard now. And as presenters, if you're doing a report, that is, I think, fundamentally what people do. We can't meander. So, and again, I think that our young people are pretty good at at figuring that out. But of course, if you're a classicist, you will say that 
a tweet is basically an aphorism, isn't it? That business of paring down the words and getting it as succinct as possible is part of the skill of the mastery of the language. Yeah, and I enjoy that bit the most, actually, when we're trying to get messages across. I want to talk about your role as the master at Magdalen College School in Oxford. It's an independent school, yet you went to a comprehensive school and were the first in your family to go off to university. It kind of chimes with uh, our recent changes in government. Have you encountered challenges as a result of being an independent school leader who themselves attended comprehensive schools? That's a really interesting question because, of course, I never get to do this job having gone to an independent school or indeed been a man, you know, being a more obvious candidate for the job. (laughs) What I will say is that it's become an advantage, or rather I've tried to to make it one, because MCS's agenda is very much about being of and for the city with the city's grammar school. And really putting that sense of citywide mission at the heart of what we do is something that is really resonant to me. And so when I'm saying that we want the school to be open to everyone and that we wear these august traditions of ours quite lightly, I hope there's an authenticity in what I'm saying about that. So no, I don't think so. I mean, in my first couple of years, there was always the odd person who just was surprised that I had the job. Even when I'd invited them to a dinner, they just (laughs) couldn't quite compute that it might be me in charge but um, I've been here for seven years now so everybody's got used to me I think but no I mean the thing about my background is that I owe everything to the support of my parents and to education and there are so many parents in this school who just say to me we are here to support our kids and we value education and we make huge sacrifices to make sure that our kids are here and of course that makes total sense to me yeah, and it does. And it's, it's, it's bridging the difference between entitlement and affordability. You know, it's, it's a luxury product to be able to send your child to an independent school. So you having gone through the, the state sector sets you in a good place because you know the reality of graft, of hard work, of non-entitlement. So that's surely actually a benefit that we need to bring into more independent schools. Have you seen that kind of side of yourselves come through in your leadership or looking at education particularly and going, that it's not fit for purpose, we need to make it better. I will take any opportunity that I can to talk about and to speak up for the importance of unashamed excellence in education. And I think that you know, we're a selective school. I think that severely abled pupils have every right to be educated in a specialist way. You know, they have a need which should be catered for. And also, actually, I think they're making a profound contribution to the rest of the world. Uh, you know, science departments and universities rely on our pupils with their excellent A-levels to go and you know, be biochemists, et cetera, et cetera. So you know, what we say here is that we're educating the kids to go and give something back. So yes, I agree with you. And I'm also very keen to ensure that our pupils understand about what privilege is and that with a right comes a responsibility. But equally, you know, they're teenagers and we want them to enjoy their childhood. You know, it's quite an unusual zeitgeist at the moment, really, for them. And how do we widen the access to enable more students to have maybe access to an independent education? Yeah, I mean, this is something that I am very, very passionate about indeed. Well, first of all, people have got to want to come. So part of it is opening doors in all sorts of ways. And that can be anything from building relationships with local primary schools so that they know that we're a force for good, they know what we're about, you know, listening to what they need out there in the community, but also helping individual pupils who might not have had the kind of training 
that they might need to flourish in our entrance exam or interview. So it's overcoming all sorts of barriers, really. And some of those barriers are perceptual. The more that we can do hosting book awards, um, having poetry days, doing maths masterclasses, you know, doing a family day or our arts festival where people just come and play on the site and understand that we do want it to be for everyone. You know, opening those doors as much as we can is one part because you know, one of the things that I found is that you know, I'm raising over a million pounds a year for endowed bursaries so that pupils can come to the school forever. I, you know, this is a key part of what we're doing. But there's no point by raising all those millions alongside colleagues here if pupils don't want to come. So, you know, we've got to be making sure that, you know, we're getting that message out there. And I think we are doing, you know, the numbers seem to back that up. We also have a lot of support here you know, from the city council and from various other bodies. So it's part of making sure that everybody knows that you're rowing and not steering and that you are just standing ready to help in any way that you can in your city or whatever your setting is. Yeah, I mean, you're in a very fortunate setting. I mean, you are on Magdalen Bridge. You are toe-to-toe with all the, the Oxford colleges. So, I mean, it's a phenomenal location as an education hotspot. When we kind of talk about social mobility or whether there's benefits, there's public benefits to partnerships, I'm always kind of not sceptical, but it's with the independent sector, I suppose, does it feel like the corporate social responsibility where we feel we have to do it? We've, we've been told to do it because we've got the money and the resources to do something. Is it a corporate governance piece or actually is this something fundamentally that's intrinsic with how you and independent schools should deliver those kind of public benefits and partnerships? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm grateful to you for allowing me the platform there to explode a few myths and prejudices that you've helpfully fed me there. And um, the first one, of course, is you mentioned our location, Archley, and you're right, you know, this place looks like a massive secret garden of privilege. We're opposite a college. We can see our founder's tower from across the road, and we've got the botanic garden across the river there. It's idyllic. Our postcode is actually OX4, and that's one of the most deprived postcodes in the country. So actually, when we're looking you know, at our outreach work, we're looking at OX4 and OX3 and working with those constituencies. So we're in a really interesting position, and we call our year five outreach project, the bridge, as you wouldn't be surprised to hear, because we have iconic white bridges ourselves. We're on a bridge, as you've mentioned, and we are building these bridges. In terms of corporate governance, no, it's not. This is something that the school has been doing in various incarnations for decades, if not longer. You know, I'm thinking about the community service organization, which has been existing on Tuesday afternoons since the Second World War. You know, I'm thinking about that commitment among our old boys, and they're literally some of the old ones at first who were giving in a big way to our endowed bursary campaign. And more recently, it's also been people of my age in their 40s and 50s who really want the school to be able to remain open to anybody who can flourish there. So this is something that's really in the ethos and the DNA of the place. And people come back who are in the 70s and 80s and say the school just feels the same to them and the pupils, yes, they're they're modern little boys and teenage girls, but they feel recognisable to those people. So there's no box ticking going on here at all. And that's fantastic to hear. You've said that attention is your most powerful resource. What do you mean by that? Well, I was talking to the lower sixth about attention yesterday, actually. And every so often we bring this idea with pupils. Um, It comes from Aristotle. 
That's basically the idea that you are what you attend to. So your time is your most precious commodity. And we're just reminding pupils and colleagues, actually, that there is a really lucrative industry out there, which is designed to snare your attention and to capitalize on this. And we're trying to say to the pupils, like what you concentrate on and what you think about is actually who you are. You get this time and what's going on in your head and what you do and whether or not you achieve flow in the activities that you're doing, et cetera, et cetera. That's your life. So we're just encouraging them to say, you know, what I say to them is you are what you attend to. Think about how all of those things are influencing you as well. So the things that you watch and the things that you think about will alter your brain in turn. So like many schools, we don't want them on their mobile phones. In school, we don't want them gaming and all those sorts of things. There are great things you can do with mobile phones, but actually in school, there's so much else going on. We want them to attend to being in school and to each other. So it's just a habit of thinking about attention. Yeah, I love it. I mean, I, I talk about being present and being present as an adult is very difficult and we have to role model it. And I think we're sometimes the worst role models because we are stuck with the same dopamine addiction that these tech companies allow us to have in our pockets. But it's that's human nature. So it's understanding how do we control and attend to what we have as these sort of destructive or disruptive forces. Sorry, I mean, it can also be quite positive. So for instance, phones, if they're making the kids feel connected with each other, it can reinforce friendships and it can be quite a positive thing. So and I'm going to be talking to the kids about this next week. You know, we're not demonizing these things. We're just saying it's about moderation, about using them positively. And I've always talked about that in everything I've done when it comes to social media behavior, all those things. I'm a massive tech advocate. You know, I think every kid should have access to all the latest technology in Charlotte because that's relevancy. That's being fit for purpose for now. What we can't do is when you go in the real world, go, by the way, you can't have your mobile phone. I'm going to take it off you when you come into work and you're going to get it back when you leave because we're not teaching them to deal with it. But at the same time, they're still kids growing up and they're learning to develop. They need structure. They need some support to be able to attend and to be better, to be grounded, all the things you talked about. And there is a beautifully connected part of all that technology. I see it with my four kids. I mean, how do you ensure students are attending in the right areas at MCS? It's a really good question. We have a program of life skills, PSHU, that we call Lilium. We name lots of things. In Latin, our founder has a, a lily as his emblem. And so we've got this whole thing of flourishing around the lily. So we're focusing on flourishing and good decision making. So we have you know, a seven year long program of you know, connected ideas, all of which are based around what we've just been talking about. And effectively, we talk to them about fuel, you know, what they eat, what they put in their bodies, what they drink, substances, sleep, which I'm obsessed with. And good decision making. Those three things cover all of it. And then everything else is just a subset of that. So you can say, yeah, we're talking to you about your phone, because it might be a good thing, it might be a bad thing. How do you make good decisions? So there are some, some themes around that. So yeah, we're doing that in lessons, we're doing that, you know, by supporting parents, chatting informally. Is there a magic formula that you recommend for dividing your attention? Got to get this balance between using your attention wisely attending to schoolwork, attending to downtime. I love it. I, mean, I think if there, there is a magic formula, because most people struggle, they need a start of a 10, Helen. What is it? Wow. Do you know, um, have you read Oliver Berkman's 4,000 Weeks? He's really good on this. He is basically saying, sorry, there is no magic formula. Because what we're doing in asking that question is looking for something to make life 
easier. And actually, what you know, his point is that these things are hard for a reason because something good comes out of them because you have to put effort in. And you know, on the one hand, we are wired to strive, and on the other hand, we're wired to be distracted. And as you said, you know, there are good things going on in our brains when we do the so-called bad things. I mean, so he's brilliant on this, and he says, "Well, you know, all the things that we probably tried, Simon. You know, the Pomodoro method. You know, so what? That's basically what we say to the kids for revision." 20 minute, 25 minutes revision or so, five minute break, and then a slightly longer break every so often. And actually, if you're trying to get teenagers to revise, that's not a bad piece of work because obviously the research shows what happens to our attention over time. You know, we can see it happening in people's brains. The problem with the Pomodoro method, of course, is that you do 25 minutes. Getting back after five is really hard. So I don't have a, a secret weapon for this, I'm afraid. And the other thing as well, of course, is that we're all different. So Sometimes I find that I work best in the mornings, but when I was on holiday this year, weirdly, I was working better in the afternoons. And I can't quite explain to you why that was. I just was in a different environment and I developed a completely different rhythm to my day. Normally between four and six is not my most sharp time, but it turns out if I'm sitting in the Greek sunshine, it is. So again, it's also about just being able to you know, to listen to yourself and to understand yourself and also perhaps to be compassionate to yourself. And of course, I say that to the kids and I say that doesn't mean if you think, oh, I don't feel like doing this, so I won't. It's about having the wisdom to self-regulate and that's, that's a life's work. So again, we never say to them, this is a magic formula. We say, we're just here to try and give you some things to help you navigate being 25, 45 and 65. It's a framework. So, I mean, the magic is in you're giving it importance. We're not just putting it away and going, just deal with it how you want to deal with it. This is important. You need to be present to attend to these things. Be mindful. Take time. There's lots of things that you can bring into that. So they go, okay, how do I want to adjust to this? Because you're absolutely right. I remember seeing some research come out and speak to other heads just about the impact of lockdown the last few years on different kids and how they learned. And it wasn't just Everybody who was really good at school in person was really good online. Some schools saw a complete opposite switch. The person who was more isolated worked better online because they weren't in a room feeling compelled to answer because they always felt overshadowed. And then the ones who liked to be in a bigger form where they were the ones with their hands up struggled because they didn't quite get the attention they needed. It's all down to individuals. And I think recognizing that and being able to deliver an education that's fit for purpose for these young men and women is the only way. But that in itself is quite difficult. I hope you're enjoying the Inspiring Schools podcast. We're always on the hunt for guests with vision and a desire to share them. If you'd like to be involved or know of someone with great ideas at a school near you, please drop me an email to podcast at interactiveschools.com and my team will be in touch. I know the MCS places an emphasis on partial care and pandemic massively brought the importance of well-being into the spotlight. I still believe we're in a well-being crisis. I think a legacy or the aftershock of, of us surviving what we did, you know, that, that resilience we had as humans, it's yet to be felt. What are the fundamentals of well-being that you see in school? And do we need to pay more attention to it? It's funny you should ask me this. We had a whole staff in set at the beginning of term that was about well-being. Yeah, Dr. Hazel Harris then talked to us all about this and to really make it a priority, first of all, for colleagues. And the thinking then, of course, is that it's intrinsically valuable that colleagues are in this position, but also they are they're thinking about pupils' well-being, you know, they, they need to make sure that they're looking after themselves. So I couldn't agree with you more. And actually, 
You know, we talked a lot about academic catch-up nationally post-pandemic, and the biggest areas to me actually seem to be social, really. And you could say, well, you would say that you're in a high-performing school. But, you know, I think every school has seen academic challenges, but the bigger ones are social. And again, that will have an impact on how people learn, you know, based on what we were just talking about earlier. If people are less mature and self-regulating, then they're not going to be as good at learning. Making sure that people have got time to be in school and have some of those experiences and to talk about those and to do some of the things that we were just talking about around self-regulation would be at least as valuable as making sure that everybody's caught up with their history and their geography learning. Part of the wellbeing recipe that you have or the fundamentals are, and you mentioned it earlier, getting enough sleep and drinking enough water. Why just those two? Where does coffee come into it? <laughs> so I did a, a blog in the exam season on be your own coach and dealt with these questions, actually, particularly for parents and particularly for parents who sometimes feel that they're kind of standing slightly uselessly on the sidelines trying to help their, their children, you know, get, get on with homework, concentrate all the things that we've talked about. Again, you know, it depends on the age of the child. And it depends on the quantities and it depends on the time of day. You know, we, we have a, a cafe downstairs with a sick form, which is selling coffee, and that kind of thing. You know, so you know, this is happening. It's very well frequented by uh, their teachers as well. But, you know, some of those basic things around you know, fluids, you know, hydration for the brain and sleep are just non-negotiable. <laughs> And again, they provide a really non-judgmental backdrop to talking about the more tricky things like alcohol, you know, and alcohol and decision-making, you know, so you find that you can weigh into some of those conversations through something that everybody can agree on and which is, you know, an absolute fundament of human existence. Difficulty with sleep is that, well, I mean, a teenager needs on average about sort of eight to 10 hours sleep, maybe more. They get up pretty early. Trying to get them to go to sleep in time is difficult. You know, most of them will struggle. Should school day shift to cater for that? Is that something you've ever explored? Or That's a really interesting question. The challenge for the school day is partly to do with the rhythm of families and transport as much as anything. It is something that I've thought about. But also when I then started reading about it, and I've also talked to the, you know, the sleep centre here in Oxford about all of this, because I felt that if there was incontrovertible evidence, and this is what we needed to do, then we ought to be doing it. But actually, there isn't. There is evidence that most teenagers need quite a lot of sleep. But the idea that they definitely need a longer lie-in in the morning is actually not the case. You know, it's partly to do with the sort of perception of certain teenagers who do that, but actually not all do. And there are many who you know, get up and are county swimmers or whatever it is, who are absolutely fine. So I would be a bit wary of making such a massive change when we're not really sure that it would necessarily deliver what we want. And of course, at the moment, the other thing is that we do catch most of them when they're pretty fresh in the morning. Let's face it, most of them are. Because the thing is also with their being young, they're much more resilient than we are if they haven't always had as much sleep as they should. And as you say, they catch up on it more easily. And then they do have the rest of their day to do whatever it is that they want to do. Because, of course, the other side of it is that there is a very strong either correlation or cause. And again, it depends on who you read as to which that is between not having a reasonable time to rise in the morning and mental health issues. So it really depends what you're reading. And what about you? 
as most leaders, you know, I count myself in this, but we're constantly on. I would love to sleep more. I, I feel I can exist on little sleep. Probably seven hours is where I sit. I know some that work with less than that, which I find I do long days anyway. But what about you? Are you good at keeping that discipline? I'm actually pretty ruthless about it. Like you, I need seven to eight. And it's not always a one-to-one correlation, is it? Sometimes you can be in bed for a bit longer and not feel as refreshed. And other times it's between six and seven and it's just worked and up your bounce. So it's hard to say. You know, all those comments I've just made about the school day starting when it does, I don't regard myself as a natural lark at all. And I've done this all my life. So I'm really sympathetic to people who find this, this hard because I am one of them. But so, you know, I'm not just thinking, oh, this is easy. It really isn't. It is very important. And you're right. There are particular times when I've had evening events at school and I'm ushering people out of the building between 11 and midnight, knowing that, you know, seven hours later, I'm going to be back in the building, never mind having got home and slept and got back in. You know, I am aware of that. And it does take its toll. You do have to find ways to put that back in at some other times. Yeah, for me, the massive one is sleep and you know, exercise. Yeah. And it is important to model it because again, it's this side that is that, you know, we can't have one rule for us and one rule for, for what we're trying to tell the kids and it, but it is difficult. And also they need to see that sometimes you do need to push it. This is what life is about. It just doesn't run on a natural, you know, rhythm that you're going to get absolutely right every single day. And also if we're talking about balance, balance doesn't mean that every day is balanced. Balance might be something that happens over a year or even a decade for some people. You know, I have many colleagues here who are chronically sleep deprived because they have young children, you know, wonderfully functioning human beings who are saying, I'm looking forward to the day when I go back to working how I used to. Everything passes. We say that to the kids. And the brilliant thing about being in a school which has been around for 543 years is that it just gives you a sense of perspective. You're obviously a selective school. The academic side of things is very important. Obviously, with lockdown, with content reduction, I know uh, across curriculums, it's been difficult. Where would you put the catch up of content and the academia next to the well-being side? Again, the problem with this, of course, is that one size hasn't fit all. As you've said, the pandemic was not experienced equally by all children in all schools. And then it wasn't experienced equally across the country. Uh, You know, this has been another issue. You know, some regions have had more lockdowns than others. And some lockdowns were more serious than others. So it's very, very difficult to organise national interventions around this. You know, I thought it was great, for instance, that the universities were organising some remedial work for people who they felt had missed core bits of their A-levels, because of course that was going to be really targeted on what they needed for the course. You know, it does worry me a bit if we've got pupils who and this is going to sound terrible, isn't it? You know, if they, you know, they don't need bits of knowledge, but you know what I mean? That if they are being tutored in something that perhaps they've decided is, is no longer relevant to whatever stage of life that it is, and this means that they're not spending that time developing some of that emotional resilience, then I would, I would be troubled by that. That said, you know, we have a very high stakes exam in university system in this country and if you don't get a certain number of grades at GCSE and A level it doesn't open future doors we have to do all we can to ensure that people are able to meet those minimum standards so you've probably seen that the attainment gap for pupils at key stage two is really lower than it's been for over 10 years and that is as a result of the pandemic and again it's being unevenly felt so you know targeting some of those basic skills 
in schools that particularly need it is critical. And to my mind, the best way to do it is actually asking recent graduates, both you know, from A-level and university, to go and give one-to-one help to those pupils. I know that so many independent school pupils do that already in different ways, particularly in primary schools. But if you could harness that energy and roll it out nationally, you know, via organisations like, say, into university, it would be amazing. And there's so many people who are keen to do that. Asking teachers to do more lessons probably isn't going to be the answer. All of that kind of mentoring is really needed. You know, it's always just down between skills and, you know, you are caught between a rock and a hard place because you're on a, an educational conveyor belt that has these gates you've got to go through that unlock another level and you go up and you unlock another level and it gives you entry to it. And until that changes, you are caught with it. We know that when they come out the other end of going through all the stages and an employer says, I'm looking, how do we make those kids stand out? And I suppose it's the skills if you've got some mentoring so the kids get more access to the reality. I mean, moving away from MCS for a moment, I was um, until recently trustee of a multi-academy trust that had some university technical colleges in them. And I know that these aren't the most well-regarded schools nationally, but it's a great pity because they are unbelievably good at just what you've described, building partnerships with local and national employers and really firing up pupils who you know, see what the potential for the future world of work might be. You know, you walk into a school in Didcot, and there's uh, a mini from BMW in the foyer. It's a really powerful statement about, you know, industrial partnerships in this neck of the woods. So there's that side of it. At MCS, we run something called externships, so like mini internships. And we work with organisations who want 16 to 18-year-olds to come and spend a day or so with them. And you're right, it's probably more fruitful for them to run a short scheme for a number of people from different schools, give them a kind of shared experience, a sort of taste today, rather than having somebody sort of lamely shadowing somebody as they, as they wander around the office in the summer. But you know, it takes more effort to organise that. But again, also careers fairs, you know, doing them in partnership with other schools, as many independent schools do alongside us, and then bringing in as much expertise as you can and you know, giving those kinds of presentations, careers, talks, those sorts of things. Um, also getting in recent graduates and new recruits, so not always having people like us, getting people who are still building a career so that they're more relatable to the people that they're advising. That's also been quite powerful for us too. I'm a mixture of you know, innovative in wanting those things to happen and then also quite old-fashioned in wanting people to, to have access to a broad curriculum and for things to be studied for their own sake because you don't know what you're going to need to know in the future I think it's quite dangerous if we're sort of written off fast swaths of knowledge too soon so I really like the fact that just about everybody in the country is studying eight subjects to GCSE at the moment I think that really gives them broad access to the different types of learning and knowledge so they can make good decisions about what they do in the future. I'm much more comfortable about them specialising after that, but I do really value that you know, broad approach. And I sort of think it's quite old-fashioned, but if you think about the genres of knowledge and what the world is like and how we understand the world, actually the major subjects do fit into that rather well. But then how do you tie it all together? Some of the schools that I speak to in other parts, or particularly America, do, do fantastic. I mean, their internship programs with a girls' school just outside of Washington, D.C. is phenomenal. The last four years of school, they spend six weeks doing internships for all four years. So they literally carve out the curriculum and they go and try lots of different things. 
as you say, they learn lots of things. They can learn geography, math, politics, history, art, design. Well, obviously linked to well-being and in the press and social, it's the importance of consent. And obviously that was brought to the spotlight with everyone's invited. Now, how should schools and parents speak to young people about consent? Because it's more and more difficult because of devices and expectations or unrealistic expectations that the teenagers put themselves that we don't see. Yes, you're right. In 2018 and 2019, I wrote a couple of short pieces about consent and porn. Too polite silence, saying just what you said, these things are critical, they are altering the ways that teenagers see themselves and the world. And consent, of course, more broadly, is the bedrock of a liberal democracy, and it's hard. When I taught A-level politics, consent was always the hardest topic. It's really difficult to grapple with, no matter what aspect of it you're dealing with. So how do you do it in a school? If we're talking about consent, you start in primary school. Any difficult concept is a bit like an onion. And so you just start unpeeling the layers. So when you're talking to a nine-year-old, you're talking about sharing and you're talking about respecting people's boundaries. And you're talking about asking permission before you do something or you take something. And you're getting this idea about how your actions affect other people and how you behave respectfully. And then as you go through secondary school, picking up on those ideas and introducing you know, more explicit content, what is pornography? You know, how does it affect the teenage brain? What is a respectful relationship? How are our perceptions of ourselves and others being affected by airbrushing, manipulative images, even deep fake, all these sorts of things? And you also keep returning to the conversation. So when we send out our drugs and alcohol policy or our relationships and sex education policy to parents, one of the things that includes is what is covered in which year. And we ask for feedback. And we also change that every year in part based on what the pupils say. So a huge change recently has been much more small group discussions. We found that some pupils really liked the big talks and they liked to just sit quietly. But actually, the older they got, the more they wanted to be able to just explore how they were feeling and reacting to what was going on in a small sympathetic group. And of course, that takes time. It means you have to train colleagues. We also have amazing opposite pupil mentors who can also facilitate discussions with younger pupils. And that's been probably one of the most powerful things we've done in recent years. So we've learned a lot, mainly because we've listened a lot, but that's also because pupils have felt much more able to tell us certain things. And that's been a huge positive. You can connect with me on Twitter, Instagram, and via LinkedIn. Remember, keep inspiring schools. We need more future school thinking now.